Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Next is now. Can you say it with me? Say, next is now. Yeah, so we're starting a brand new series this morning. If you have a phone, you can uh, take that out. They'll put up a QR code if you want to follow along in the sermon card. And you can just kind of zoom in on the screen there and you can follow along with us. And this, of course, is available in many different ways. Uh, I have a really big announcement to make. Are you ready? I didn't forewarn you I was going to make the big announcement. And I did that intentionally. Didn't communicate that across our channels or outlets of communication because I wanted to see this morning if somebody would bring the news up to me when I came on campus. I wanted to see if somebody had their spidey senses up to know that today we are seven years old. Today's our seven-year-old birthday. (laughs) Dwelling place church. Oh my God, that was a week at seven years old today. Seven years old. We launched on August 9th, 2015. Of course, today is August 7th, 2015. And uh, that is a lot to be uh, excited about, a lot to be praiseworthy, honestly. Uh, Did you know right now in America, 68% of church plants now succeed? That's a whole lot better than we were a decade ago. So about 32% failure. Uh, Let me give it to you this way. Uh, Out of 15 church plants that fell, let's say that that, that 30-something percent, all right? Four of those usually from a a moral failure from the church planner himself or herself. Four out of those because they do not have the right culture, right context. And then another seven of those are actually failing because the church doesn't have enough time to reach what we call critical mass or sustainability financially. But you know, listen, we're seven years in and we're just beginning to get started, right? And God has done a great work in these last seven years. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. There's about 350 million people in the nation you're sitting in right now. Did you know 188 million of them are completely unchurched? If the unchurched started their own nation, they would be the eighth most populous nation in the entire world. So we are in probably the greatest mission field outside the 1040 window that is in the world. Did you know if we doubled the amount of churches in America right now, we can't even come close to reaching the unchurched? We would need right now 200,000 churches at 1,000 members each to make a dent and to touch the nation that you and I live in. So I, I don't know if you can kind of synthesize all that I just said, but we need some more church plants We need more people to run with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm grateful that God is doing that and speaking that into the hearts of people. But I wanted to celebrate with you this morning. We are indeed seven years old, seven years old. So praise God for that. Um, As we jump into today's series, Next is Now, I want to just make it clear to you. When we considered the preaching of Dwelling Place Church in 2022... We were, like all things we do in our church, very intentional about what we would preach. And so over the last few months, I've had a real clear intent and purpose. I have wanted to put in your guts courage and conviction and a refusal to shrink back as the world looks like it is absolutely losing its mind. I wanted to stir up, it's been very intentional, in the deepest parts of your being a fearlessness because of Jesus Christ and his power that's available. 
And so our series have been designed up to this month, the seventh series so far, to help you understand what it looks like to love God, to love people, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ, which is what we're doing here at Dwelling Place. Now, we just finished a series in July. What was it about? It was about anti-racism. It was about a biblical response to racism. Why? So that we can, once again, understand the gospel clearly and then live out of the gospel. Now, here's my hope, because I I, I feel like I, I owe this to you as an attender here at our church. If you were to pull me aside today after church and catch me in the parking lot or catch me in the lobby, and you were like, all right, Pastor Craig, what are you, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? I would tell you, I am trying to unleash you on the world in such a way that the principalities and powers in this present darkness would tremble, tremble when you live your life. That's what I'm after, folks. I'm long beyond the years of playing church. I'm long beyond the years of thinking the world that we live in is a playground. It is an absolute battleground. And so that takes us into our next series, which you're in today, called Next Is Now. Now, the reality is, some of you, you hear us talking about such things, but some of you don't know where you quite fit into these things. And so you come to church here and it stirs in you something, but you're not quite sure what to do after that. And again, I told you, I have a deep desire that the principalities and powers of this present age, and you say, Craig, you're making up that language. No, I'm just quoting Ephesians 2. That the the principalities of this present age, I, I want the demons of today to be able to say what we see in the book of Acts when the demons say to the seven sons of Sceva, go read it in the book of Acts, they look at these men of God and they say, hey, we know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? I don't want anyone in this room to be able to get a, but who are you from the devil? I want every person today in this room to play such a role in understanding who you are and what you are in Jesus Christ that demons would be able to say, I know Jesus and I've heard of them and insert your name. Folks, I, I, I'm already there, by the way. I'm not going to kind of like build up today, all right? I'm already built up with my week. I want the demons to look at you and know who you are. And know what kind of impact you're wreaking havoc on that dark kingdom. So I want that for you. I feel that into the bottom parts of my bones. But maybe you feel a little bit stuck. And next, you want to be now. But really, it's your past that keeps living in the present. So, so what, do we, what do we do with that? Well, let me say this. I know today is a sensitive subject. I've entitled the message today, Goodbye Past. Hello, next. And what I want to do for the moments we have together is I want to address the past, but I don't want to just address the past. I want to address your past so you can move into what is next. Now, if I say your past and your heart starts racing a little bit, all right, and you're thinking, Pastor Craig, you know what, like I do so much work to kind of keep this down. To, to, I don't really want to acknowledge what went down. I don't really want to talk about what had happened. I don't want to talk about it. Listen, I didn't say you were going to talk about it. I said I was going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about your past, my past. And I've been praying this week that God would speak to you not only about your past, but speak to you about your future. Let me just tell you something. Are you ready? If I were your enemy, I would pick on you as it relates to your past. You know why? 
Because next slide, I believe, listen, the more concerned, this is the key, the more concerned the enemy is with God moving in your future, the more conviction he has to get you to dwell in your past. The more that the enemy becomes concerned about the people God's putting in your life. Listen, 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 listen to me. I am not saying the enemy is omniscient. You hear preachers talk like the enemy knows your beginning from your end. He does not know your, but what he does know is he watches the pieces of your life. And when he begins to see the pieces of your life coming together for a different future, he is intent on trying to do everything he can to get you focused on your past. If God begins to align the circumstances of your life for a new future, the enemy's going to do everything he can to try to get you focused on your past. Let me read three passages of Scripture this morning as we jump in. First thing I'm going to read is out of uh, 1 Corinthians. If you go back to that first passage, we're going to begin reading 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read 3, 4, and 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, Paul said, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare have divine power. Everybody say divine power. It's not human power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Next passage, John chapter 18, look at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus, and because the disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyards, speaking of John, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. Peter wasn't able to get into the six trials that Jesus went on on the night of his betrayal, but he uses the free pass from John. And he says, you aren't one of the men disciples, are you? She asked Peter, the, the servant girl, and he said, no, I'm not. And it was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire, but they say a fire. They had made them to keep warm. This is one way we know what time of the year it is. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Next verse. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about the disciples and teaching. And I've spoken open to the world. He said, I've always taught in synagogues, the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Sure, they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I said something wrong, he said, testify as to what's wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why'd you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, so he goes to his next trial. Next verse. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples, are you too? And he denied it, saying, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him and said, Hey, I just, just arrested this guy um, out in the garden called Jesus, and um, I'm actually related to the guy who got his ear cut off by a man out there, and I never mistake faces. Like, I, I, I'm pretty sure your face is the dude who just cut my cousin's ear off. Now, you've got to read this. This, is, this text is humorous. It's unbelievably humorous what John's doing here. Didn't I, didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Final passage, John chapter 21. Notice what the text says. And afterward, Jesus appeared again post-resurrection to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter called, or also Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana, the sons of Zebedee, the other two were together. And Peter said, I'm going to fish. We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus, post-resurrection, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples didn't realize it was him. They thought it was a phantom, a ghost. And he called out to them. And friends, you guys don't have any fish? This is a replay of what happened when he first called the disciples. No, they answered. Next slide. 
He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat. You're going to find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard it, it's the Lord, he wrapped up his outer garment around him because that's what you do. You put on your clothes to get in the water. And he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. And when they landed, they saw, watch this, a fire of burning coals. Everybody say a fire. With fish on it and some bread. Jesus is cooking them some breakfast. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. Lest you don't think God cares about the details of your life, it was such a large catch of fish, 153 to be exact. Not 152 and a half, not 153 and one three quarters, but 153 fish. But even so, with that many, the net was torn. Notice this. The net was torn. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was Jesus. But they're full of shame. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Goodbye past. Hello next. Goodbye past. Hello next. Satan wants to do everything he can to get you to be intent on your past. Let me show you some things that I think are very significant for the day and age in which we live in. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's this story, fascinating story of the people of Israel. They're in a war with the Philistines. In this war with the Philistines, they're in the valley of Elah, and Jesse, a man named Jesse, has some boys that are fighting on the front lines. And so the, the army knows that they're greatly outnumbered. In fact, they're at a standstill. They're unable to move forward in God's purpose. And so he sends his youngest son, David, who is a shepherd boy, with some cheese and bread and a couple other things to the front lines of the battle to give his brothers some substance. And so as David's on his way to the front line of the battle, he gets in the valley where the two armies are just set up. And he gets there, just so happens to get there, just in time for the biggest human that's ever lived on the planet, named Goliath, stand up. He walks out in his side of the valley, looks at the children of Israel. He curses Yahweh, Adonai. He curses God. He curses the people of God. Then he puts out a challenge. And this big nine foot nine dude, behemoth, he makes the challenge. He said, if any one of you wants to come out and fight me and you beat me, then all of us Philistines will flee and we will, we will leave you alone. You'll have won the battle. And so the Bible tells us that David heard that. Now, the people of Israel were so afraid that they didn't even want to be seen by Goliath. If you go read the text, the Bible says they left every day when he came out and went and hid in rocks and caves. They didn't want to be seen by him. Well, David sees it, and David is provoked by what Goliath's doing. So he goes to the other warriors that are around him, and he's like, hey, man, what's going on? What's going on? Like, why are y'all just standing back and letting this dude sit here and defy God? Like, he's defiling God and you. And... I don't know if you're like this or not, but they start accusing him. They're like, oh, David, you just came here to see, you know, blood, guts, and glory. Like, what are you doing here? But that doesn't deter him. The accusations don't deter him at all. He goes to the next group of warriors. He's like, hey, guys, like, like what are y'all doing? Like, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause to, like, stand up to this dude? And they're like, oh, man, you just came out here for the wrong reasons, but it doesn't deter him. Well, listen, when somebody gets courageous in the middle of the battle, it's going to end up making its way through the ranks, and the courage word gets back to the king, right? And King Saul. And all of a sudden, now, the king is afraid, too. It ain't like Saul walking out there every day. He's been hiding out in the back of his tent, and so what do they do? They take David to the king. Now, you can imagine how disappointed Saul was when David walks in the room. I mean, you got the runt boy, right? He's thinking, now somebody's not afraid, somebody in our ranks is not afraid. We're going to fight this battle. And in comes David. Well, Saul looks at him and starts accusing him as well. But this didn't deter David. He's like, yeah, you're right. I'm the smallest. 
He's like, but let me tell you a quick story. And he tells him the story of a lion on the backside of the wilderness that snatched up a sheep of his dad's, Jesse, and ran off with the sheep. And David tells Saul that I actually ran the lion down, I tracked it down, grabbed it by its mane, and struck it until it died. Now, now let me just pause a moment, okay? He ran a lion down with his feet, he grabbed it by the face, and he beat it with a staff, okay? This is not North Georgia 300 Winchester mag from 300 yards and knocked the, knocked the lion down, Okay? Like, I know David gets a bad harp because he plays the harp. You know what I'm saying? But, like, this is a man's man. Like, this is a dude you don't want to trifle with. And he kills it. Well, this obviously convinces Saul. So he brings him back into his tent and he shows him the king's armor. Now, I don't know much about the king's armor, but I know this is kind of legit stuff. This is like top of the line kind of equipment. Like, you need it to make it in battle. And so David puts it on. And he tries to walk, right? And he realizes, whoa, this is not my armor. It feels a little bulky in it, feels a little clanky. And so he takes it off. He says, I, Saul, I don't need it. And he goes into battle. And whether you grew up in church or not, you know the rest of the story. He picks up five smooth stones. He takes one of them. He hits Goliath in the head. He destroys him. He goes, runs over, cuts his head off, takes his head back to his tent. The whole Philistines run. And all of the Israelites chase them and pursue them down all the way to Gath. Now listen to me. Listen to me, church. I am not saying today that you are David, but I am saying today that many of you might be wearing Saul's armor. Many of you might be wearing Saul's armor. Some of you in this room, you're wearing armor that wasn't built for you. So this series this month is about identity. It's about our purpose and about our mission. But I want you to listen to me. Now listen. Everyone in this room, I want you to, I want to make this clear. Everyone in this room has a general identity, okay? Put that slide up there. A general identity. What do we mean by a general identity? The general identity has everything or is tied up in what you do with the person and the work of Jesus Christ, okay? So everybody in this room, you're either a child of God or you're a child of wrath. Now listen to me. If you fit into that child of wrath category, that is on you. That is on you, my friend. That's not on God because Christ has actually already come so you wouldn't be condemned but to save you from that condemnation. So if you're in the child of wrath category, you can't get upset with God because you, you, when you're saying, you know what, I'm a better God than God is. I know how to better live my life than God knows how to live my life. I know better how to live my life than the creator does. So listen, that causes, what that does is it causes the God of the universe to turn you over to yourself, right? This is what happens. And people then destroy themselves. So we can't get mad if we're children of wrath. We must realize that's on us. That's not on God. We must repent. We must accept Jesus. Now, everybody in here has a general identity based upon what you've done with Jesus. That's first. We're children of God. We're children of wrath. Now, watch this. You ready? If you don't follow this, you're going to miss the whole next, next three weeks. We then secondly have a specific identity. Well, what is that specific identity? You're not me. I'm not you. I don't play your role. You don't play my role. You are unique in Christ. There's only one of you, and there will always ever only be one of you. The Bible says, watch this, you've been uniquely designed by God from your physical makeup to what the Bible calls the unformed substance. The Bible calls it unformed substance. We call it personality. We call it drive. We call it bent. What you were when you came out of the womb. Now watch that. You have been a general identity, what you did with Jesus. You have a specific identity. You then also on top of that have been uniquely placed. So watch this. You're uniquely wired and then you're uniquely placed by God. Can I just say, y'all, this is huge. This is huge. 
Like think about what that means with God's, about God's involvement with you. Like why would God say he delights in you? Because he created you that way. He loves you and he created you the way you are. He made you fearfully and wonderfully. And let me tell you something this morning. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make trash. God doesn't mess up when he acts. And listen, if these things are true, then watch this. Then self-hate, comparison, and ultimately coveting are accusations against God. They're not just something you do. They're not just something you say. You are actually accusing God of not being good, of not being smart, and trying to dismiss yourself from the uniqueness of what he's called you to. So let me me dive into that concept more fully. Why do we have such a hard time living out of that general and specific identity where they collide? Why is it that that collision is a place we can never live out of? Let me say it this way. Why can't we get to the place where we are okay with who we are, and that's okay? Well, friends, I think Satan has a vested interest in that. He has a vested interest in keeping us from that. Why? Because if Satan can make you be somebody else, y'all, you are, you are a janky version of someone else. Like, you think you're a poor version of yourself? Can I go and just tell you with 100% confidence, you're a poor version of somebody else. If you think you're a poor version of you, imagine how bad of a poor version you are of somebody else. And so if he can get you jammed up in that, living out of somebody else's life, you are no teeth at all. Like, you're, you're, you're no, like, he doesn't have to worry about you a bit. Satan doesn't have to, he doesn't even have to lift a finger to you. So, so look at this passage again in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want you to see it. Verse 3, Paul is addressing, by the way, in this context, the super apostles. Everybody say super apostles. So these super apostles in Corinth were making accusations against Paul. And Paul, if you don't know this, if you study history, Paul was not much to look at. He was really short, had um, kind of a, a crooked nose, kind of jacked up teeth, uh, was just not an attractive man, okay? All history tells us that, just not an attractive dude. Not a dude you just want to keep looking at. And um, he was, on top of that, always in trouble, all right? So he was in jail. He was constantly getting beaten. He was constantly suffering. He was constantly going through hardship. And so all the super apostles of the day were looking at Paul and they were like, this is, your, this is God's guy? Like, are you serious? Like, I mean, have you seen the dude? Like, this is the mouthpiece of God? And what are they trying to do? They're trying to undermine his authority in Corinth. So Paul wasn't having it. So what he does in chapter 10 is he defends his ministry. Now watch what's amazing. It's right in the middle of his defense of his ministry. He pulls up this concept of what we're going to talk about today called strongholds. He begins to communicate what strongholds are. Now I want to explain to you what strongholds are from the text. Look at verse 5. He says in verse 5, we destroy. We destroy. Can I just pause right there and say, I love that word here. He said, we destroy. Not we shove down, not we hit. He said, we flip and destroy. Are you tracking with me? I want you to understand this. This is the strongest Greek word. This is not a passive stance. This is, I am going to rip you to pieces. This is, I'm not hanging around in peaceful coexistence. He said, we destroy what? We destroy arguments. We destroy what? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that what? Is raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now let me define for you a stronghold. Are you ready? This is a stronghold. A stronghold is a mindset, a value system, or a thought process that hinders your growth. Okay? A stronghold is that which keeps you from next. A stronghold is a mindset, a value system, or a thought process that hinders your growth. 
Now, the Bible says we don't destroy people. We're tearing down lies, folks. Christianity is a game of arguments and ideas and value systems by which we live our lives based on those things. A stronghold is a stubborn disposition in how we think about ourselves and the world around us. Can I tell you how they're formed? Let me tell you how they're formed. Strongholds are almost always born from either our doubts of God's goodness or our doubts of his ability. That's pretty much every stronghold. It gets developed and formed and cultivated in my heart because I begin to doubt God's goodness or I doubt his ability. I love the way John 8, 44, Jesus now is addressing the Pharisees and he says this in John 8, 44, he says, you were of your father, the devil. Jesus wasn't impressed. Okay, he looked at the disciple, uh, the, the, he was not impressed with them. He said, your will is to do the father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, who's Satan? He speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. So watch this. A stronghold is born out of a mindset or a value system that we have adopted. And I want you to know something here. It's very important to note that a stronghold isn't just something that has a hold on you. A stronghold is something that you have a hold of because you feel safe holding on to it. Strongholds don't just hold you. You hold them because you find safety in them. So it works both ways. Now watch this. The stronghold, yes, it grabbed a hold of you, but then you grabbed a hold of it, and it, the Bible says it's rooted in the lies of the devil. Read John eight forty four. It's rooted right in his lies. So listen, if the enemy can lie to you enough months and enough years and shape a mindset or a value system that takes you out of the game, he's won. So let me talk to you just for a moment, church, about the four ways strongholds form. Are you ready? Here's the first way strongholds form. Four ways they form. First of all, words and wounds. Strongholds form through words and wounds. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to keep his um, identity anonymous. I'm going to call him Mark. Mark, I pastored for several years. I did counseling him for several years. Mark tells us a story when he was five or six years old. As a five or six-year-old, there was something brought to light in his history and his family of origin. And because it came to light, the state ordered all of his family, including his three siblings and parents, to go to family counseling, all of them. And the five-year-old, Mark, always thought that it was just about him. He actually was under the assumption as a five-year-old that the whole family had to go to counseling because of him, because he was just a rambunctious kid. He was always in trouble. But he actually had nothing to do with why they were in counseling, but they couldn't share with him why they were in counseling because of his age. But you know what his five-year-old brain did? His five-year-old brain thought it was him. Stupid Satan. I'm trying to give you the best picture of why I just want all as much as I can to bash his teeth in. He comes to little five-year-olds little six-year-olds and he begins to whisper to them this is why the family's in counseling and Satan whispers to that tiny little heart that doesn't have the capacity to fight the whispering yet man you're a lot bro Mark your parents don't know what to do with you man look at what you've done to your family that lasted for the next 30 years 
And he found evidence of that everywhere. He found evidence in any slight, in any rejection, anybody at church that had any kind of quasi-hardship he went through. Everything he now faced in life was through the filter of that he's a mess up, that he is, a, he is too much for his parents to handle. And then all of a sudden he would read and reiterate without even knowing what he was doing. See, you're too much, Mark. See, what, what did I tell you? You make messes. And so what happens is this becomes kind of like the driving force of every pursuit of success. It forces him to want to go into more education and every conquest of his life and every even hiding of fear and vulnerability. It becomes an operating system within him that he operates out of. And listen, church, he has no idea that he's doing it. But he finally catches up at 35 years old and starts doing the hard work of understanding his past. Because remember, I want you to say this. Next slide. You can't spiritually bypass sorrow and pain. You can't go around it. you got to go through it. You, you, God won't allow it. You will not get jumped. You will not leapfrog over the past of pain and sorrow. you got to go right through the middle of it. You can't bypass it. So he has enough ability by the church and community around him to work through the issues. The good news is Jesus will walk with you through it. So the, one of the ways that we can explain this, maybe this helps you, is Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Next slide. What, what do we mean by Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones? We might very much have Christ in our hearts and be guaranteed victory. And yet in the words and wounds of our past, in those experiences that we have bought into those words and wounds, and all of the lives that surround those words and wounds, what happens is we embrace them. And since they start when we're little, y'all, they start when we're little. As we get older, they begin to weave themselves into us, and we don't even know any different. It's just the way we operate. We don't even know why we're angry. We don't even know why we're depressed. We don't even know why we're sad. It's a word or a wound. Now, let me give you some content warning here. I want to say some difficult things. So over the next few moments, if you feel flushed, okay, here's what you do. Do whatever you got to do. Breathe. Okay? Breathe through it. Experience it. There are some of you that, that you're not like Mark. And these things actually did happen to you. Some of you were neglected. Some of you were abandoned. Some of you were molested. Others of you in this room were raped. Some of you were physically beaten. And I want to say to you, this is evil. This is demonic. And I'm so sorry it happened. And it's awful. And it shouldn't have happened. Like what a terrible thing happened to you. So, so let's look at each other. Look at me. I, I want to say something in a very, very clear way, but I pray it is not twisted and used by the enemy, but it's used to only help you. It is not noble for you to hate yourself. And you are not what happened to you. Look, look at me. It is not noble for you to hate yourself. And you are not what happened to you. What other sinful, broken people have done to you does not define you, folks. It does not have the chance to define you. The wickedness of another person forced upon your personhood 
from a parent who was checked out or from maybe a parent who was so checked in, you felt strangled as a teenager. You felt so enmeshed with your mom because she was so on top of you. Or listen, folks, I've passed it for two, I've passed it for two decades. Maybe it was a parent who was so addicted to their own drugs they couldn't even notice you. Maybe it was the pain because of a past experience that no one knows about, and it's kind of the way that we begin to define ourselves. I want to tell you today, it is the enemy, and it is a lie. And it is not noble for you to hate yourself. And it's, listen, you are not what happened to you. Are you tracking with me? Listen, I'm sorry. But you're not what happened to you. Craig, why are you preaching like this? Because I pastor you. And if you begin to own what happened to you as though it's you, it's going to spill over into all kinds of anger and bitterness that's absolutely terrifying. And that shouldn't have happened the way it did. Someone should have been there to defend you. That shouldn't have happened and gone down the way it went down. But listen to me. You are not that moment. And you're not that thing. So what do you have to do? You have to trust God with justice. The Bible says the Lord owns the vengeance. The vengeance is of the Lord. Listen to me. You don't have to carry that is what that means. You know what it means this morning? Next can be now. You can move forward in God's purpose. You can can trust that God will heal. You can trust that God will redeem. You can trust that God will do what he said he'll do. And you are not that moment. You're not that moment. So that's the first thing. That's how strongholds happen. And they keep you from what's next. So demon spirits, they start to whisper. Yeah, you'll never be enough. Yeah, you know, you are kind of a feminine man. Yeah, you really are kind of a masculine woman. Yeah, you'll never measure up. I mean, you can try that, but you'll probably fail. And Satan just says the cruelest things imaginable to us. But remember, remember what I said. Strongholds don't just have a hold of you. You have a hold of it. And I don't know how to explain this other than this. In the twistedness of a fallen world, I don't know why it's true, but in the twisted of a fallen world, there is something about holding on to our strongholds that medicates us. Like, God help us, we will actually feel safe in it while simultaneously feeling stuck in moving forward. Next is now. Second way strongholds are formed. Comparison, or what the biblical term called coveting. Comparison formed strongholds in my life. I was a youth pastor for over a decade, right? You know this. So we had a lady in our youth group, beautiful, bright young lady, amazing in our ministry, awesome, faithful servant of God. And she and another um, teenage girl were having drama. I know it's crazy, right? I mean, they were having drama. Can't imagine. That never goes down, right? And so um, can I just say real quick, teenage girls, they are just, I love all of you, evil, okay? They, they are just, is that, is that uncalled for? I mean, like, But teenage girls, y'all, like my experience is guys will like punch each other and then just be best friends. You know what I'm saying? Like guys, like we aren't trying to hit another brother in his soul. Like teenage girls, they never aim for the physical stuff. They're like, I'm going to destroy your personhood with every ounce of ability I have. You know, girl, it's it's something different. Okay, teenage girls, I love you. We love you. But they are something different, all right? And so there's this drama. I know you can't imagine it, but um, this, this one girl says to our teenage girl, not like my own, but like in our youth group. And she says to her one day, she says, hey, you are just a Walmart version of this other beautiful girl. Them are fighting words. That's dirty. 
You're a Walmart version of this other, other girl. Now, I'm sad I only honestly even told you that because some of you are going to file that away and in a flesh weekly moment. You might pull that out. You might pull that out in the future, but <clears throat> I'm telling you, if you do, things are going to spiral uncontrolled, okay? Now, now, here's what's crazy about that. Listen, number one, if you know this girl in our youth group, that's laughable, y'all. She's drop-dead gorgeous. She's brilliant. She is amazing. And number two, if she was trying to be this other beautiful girl, she would be a Walmart version of her because she's not that girl. So here is the thing about comparison. Comparison is so insidious because watch this, it will rob you from the gratitude you should walk in. And if you don't have gratitude, you don't have joy. Next slide, listen to me. Comparison robs you of gratitude. And if you do not have gratitude, you cannot have joy in life. So the more that I compare, the less joyful I'll be. It's going to sap me of the ability to experience the joy of God and the joy of being me. So if you're constantly going, man, I'm meant to look like that, aren't you putting on Saul's armor? I'm supposed to be like that, and this will kill you. I mean kill you, like kill the real you. I'm wondering how many people in this room have no joy because you can't be grateful because you're looking at somebody else. I wonder how many people can't have joy because you can't be thankful because you compare into someone else. And listen, folks, let me just say something real quick. When I talk about comparison, I'm talking about personhood, not possessions. Do not dismiss this message or point and say, oh, he's talking about like, I wish I had the car they had. I'm not talking about possessions. I'm talking about, oh, I wish I was like that. Oh, I wish I looked like him. Oh, I wish I was like her. Like, why would you ever, friends? Like, you would make such a janky version if that, of that person if you tried to be that person. And I know, listen, I know God wants you to be grateful for what God has done on your own life, right? To have a moment, folks, look at me, look at me, check in with me. To have a moment where you're able to look, right, and say, God made me good at that. Like, God made me good at that. There's nothing wrong with that. Do you know that's okay? Church, can I give you permission this morning? It's not arrogance to do that. If anything, it's humility to recognize, man, like God's pulling this off through my life. Like, I know I'm not pulling this off. Like, can I just say to you this morning, church, look at me. God is at work doing something crazy in you, friends. He's doing something awesome in you. Like, have you ever thought about this? If you're an intercessor, that's crazy. Like, God has so worked in your life that you have a heart to see God move in the life. That is crazy, y'all. That's unbelievable. That God is using your life to, to pray and to speak life on behalf of other people. Folks, that was, that's unbelievable. You were made for the day, and the day was made for you. And comparison kills that. So you must stop trying to be some poor version of someone else. Like, come on, guys. Come on, ladies. God says you're uniquely designed and wired, and you're uniquely placed. And it's a lie for you to think that you're supposed to look like that. And it's a lie for you to think that you're supposed to act like that. Like what God has done, for goodness sakes, folks, can I just say, you're killing it this morning. Can I just tell you that morning I, that no one, listen, listen, no one else has endured what you have had to endure to get to this moment this Sunday. Like how wicked would I be without not knowing your full history to then say, I want to try to be like you. Like how wicked would that be? Look at me, church. In America right now, not only is everybody tired, but nobody's getting any positive affirmation. Almost no one's getting any pats on the back. There are no hugs. You go through our culture, literally no hugs, and we just can't live this way. Can't live this way. So I want you to focus in right here. Focus in on me. 
Can I tell you something this morning that maybe no one else has told you about recently? You look amazing this morning. Can I just say you're doing better than you think this morning? You're doing well, friend, if I can just encourage you. You could be way worse, can I just tell you this morning. You're doing a whole lot better than you imagined when you came to church this morning. Listen, there's still breath in your body this morning. You still have a physical, able structure to make it to church this morning. God has graced you with another day this morning. He's still standing with you. And can I just say to you this morning, he wants you to succeed. Because as long as there's breath in your body, there is purpose in your life. You are valuable. Jesus shed his blood for you. You're doing better than you think. And you need to keep your head up and stop comparing yourself to everybody else around you. Here's what's funny about about people. There are people who will come across me and they'll think I am way further than they would have ever expected me to be. And then there's some other people that will come across me and they'll be like, is that all? What do I mean by that? Look at me. What do I mean by that? Only God has the perspective. Right here, right here. Only God has the perspective of what you survived. I don't have it. Only God has it. Who knows what happened to you to get to you to this moment? What both good and evil has befallen you. But you're here this morning, aren't you? And you're singing to Jesus. And you're hanging in there. And man, I'm just saying, good job. Can I just tell you this morning, good job. You're doing a great job. Keep moving. But if you continue to try to find someone else you think is varsity and mimic their lives, you'll be robbed of what's next. Can I just say, last point before I move to number three, I want you also to watch what happens to your spirit as you scroll. You can't every day, all day, just allow other people's highlight reels into your soul. It won't be good for you. So, so, so this week has been a highlight. Well, the first part of this week was a highlight week for me. The last part of the week was not so much. We had some good times in our church right now. We're getting some, I felt like this week got some really good traction on some upcoming goals. Got some traction on what God's calling us to do. And then on Thursday, I had the craziest experience. So I went to Alpharetta to, to detail a vehicle. And I know the father of the daughter's vehicle that I was detailing. And I'm there detailing, just normal Thursday morning. And the daughter, who's 20 years old, <clears throat> comes home from a, her mom's car and walks up. And I got my earbuds in, but I stop and I talk to her and I'm not sure how we got on the topic, but within the first few minutes, we got to talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, she grew up in a church called North Point Community Church, and so she has obviously never been open whatsoever to the work and ministry of the Spirit. And, um, and so having grown there in kind of that faith tradition, she did not know this. Well, she went to a, a Church of God youth camp a couple weeks ago in Virginia. And so I started talking to her, and she is literally, I mean, just bawling. And so I just... I didn't have my Bible, but I just started quoting some scripture for it. And in this moment, it was crazy. It's not like I asked for it. The Lord just gave me this word of knowledge that was then followed by a word of wisdom. And it was just the weirdest, most strange, glorious experience. And so I just speak to her. And we had this like 20-minute, 30-minute shindig. I'm like, I got to get back to the car. And she walks in. And I still have my earbuds in. And I go back to my old worship playlist from when I was just... A young, a 
a young teenager. And for the next three hours, it's like the Lord came down onto that driveway and he like fellowshiped with me. And I felt, I legit felt the Father's warmth of his smile in a way that I haven't in years. And the feeling that accompanied that was the feeling I received when I first got baptized in the Spirit. And she was just not baptized in the Spirit. Her heart is on fire, missionary impulse. And y'all, I turned the three-hour detail into four. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like this. I didn't want it to end because I knew if I stopped detailing and got in my truck, this experience would end. And I literally felt like the Father's embrace as I was working. And I was just, man, it was glorious. It was, it was amazing. It's amazing. It's a highlight moment. But then I got to the end of the week and it wasn't a highlight moment. And I want to tell you this this morning. You're not always going to have highlight moments. And if we're constantly putting in our souls everyone else's highlight reels, it's going to eventually cause damage to us. You say, Craig, how do you know? I, here, here, here's the point. Your soul will tell you. Watch this. Look at me. If you start feeling sorry about your life or your marriage or your spouse and how they treat you compared to the spouses you see on somebody else's social media, Satan is sneaky. Listen to me. He will come and he will erode gratitude first. So the first thing that will happen in your heart is you'll stop being grateful. You'll move away from thanksgiving. And you're going to be stuck in a stronghold. Words and wounds. Comparison. Here's the third way strongholds are formed. Perfectionism. Perfectionism. Let's talk about it. Some of y'all already like flinched. <laughs> if you're a perfectionist, can I just tell you, your life will be ruled by fear. If you are a perfectionist, you will be marked by fear and not faith. Why? Because it always has to be perfect. And I'm going to tell you, friend, you can't pull that off. Fear is toxic, listen, to flourishing Christian faith. And by the way, can I just encourage you? It is faith, not outcomes that please God. Aren't you glad about that? Hebrews eleven six 6 says outcomes please God. No, he said without faith, it's impossible to please God. And guess what? Faith is not perfect. Faith is mis uh, messy. Faith is risky. And sometimes we fail. And here's what's great. When we fail, God is never there with the mallet saying, you know what? I knew it. When I died on the cross, I knew this guy would. No, no, no. Let, let me say this to you real quick. It is Satan who accuses. God does not accuse. God bestows. It is Satan who accuses. God gives. God never never accuses. So when you hear accusation, you are hearing the voice of the enemy. Listen to me. Perfectionism is the denial of being human. It's a, it's a living in denial of what it means to be a human. And, and can I just say to you, I know some of you, and for some of you, it's really scary. If you're a perfectionist, because my guess is it's your perfectionism is what got you where you are. And so you think people now love you at work. And they love you because you get it done. So to let go of that is really, really scary. Do you see why we call these strongholds? You see why we call them bondages? Because your perfectionism got you to where you are. What happens if you're not perfect anymore? Lean in, lean in. Let me, let me tell you something. We already know you're not perfect. So you can what? You can appreciate your work and I can appreciate your work. We can appreciate your work without trying to be a real crummy version of Jesus. Perfectionism always gets us to stick in the past. Here's the fourth way strongholds are formed, past failures. 
past failures. So let's go back to John 18. This is powerful. John 18, the Bible says, go back to John chapter 18, that Jesus, the night he was betrayed, was taken into six different trials. Now, to me, what's fascinating about those six trials is that they were trying to find everything possible, jumping through every legal loophole to try to get execution for the Son of God. So they had to constantly go from place to place, Caiaphas to to Pilate, back to Judea, the government, then to Herod. He goes all over the place on this Thursday evening. If you go to John chapter 18, notice it says Simon Peter and the other disciple were following Jesus. But Peter had to wait outside, and so he uses the ticket to get in. And notice what the text says, that the servant girl says, you aren't one of his disciples, and he said no. And it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was standing there warming himself. Now, next slide, the Bible then says he's asked again, hey, Peter, are you going, you're you're one of his disciples, and he denies it. He asks a third time, are you one of his, and he denies it. Now, listen to me, if you jump over to Mark's POV, the text says, that Peter on the third time began to curse Jesus. The text actually says this, he began to swear oaths. I want, you to, I want you to follow with me for a moment. If you study the language there, this is not like Peter swearing with a curse word, like H-E double hockey sticks, no, I don't know him. Okay? Like that, that's not what he's saying. What it's actually saying is he was trying to prove to them that he wouldn't know Jesus because he began to curse Jesus as though to say, would a disciple of his ever curse him like this? So he begins to use words cursing his Savior. He begins to curse the one who fed him the cup and the bread a few hours earlier. And so when they hear this, they begin to rail on Jesus. Jesus would go to these different trials throughout the night. Well, Mark says something amazing. Mark says that while Jesus is going from place to place, he looks over at Jesus one time. Jesus looks over at Peter one time. Look at Luke 22. I want you to see this, verse 61 and 62. This is Luke 22. The Lord turned. He's leaving, and Peter has denied him. He turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you would disown me three times. And the Bible says he went outside, and he didn't just weep. He goes and he weeps bitterly. And so what does Peter do? The text says he goes back to fishing. Now listen to me. He leaves and goes back to his former career. He felt so low after this. He thought, you know what? Maybe God can forgive me in the future, but there's no way I'm ever preaching again. I'm going to fish. Y'all, fishing was not a leisurely activity. It was an occupational, commercial occupation. And, And on top of that, Jesus called him away from that. So when you read the text, what you need to interpret it is, I'm returning to my former life. I'm going back to my former life. I'm staying away from this Jesus thing. Now, you've got to let that sink in. You've got to let that sink in. Words and wounds, comparison. Notice this. After the comparison, get to this place of coveting. Our hearts com- covet. We get into a place of perfectionism. After perfectionism, you go to this place of past failures. Four ways that these are formed. Now, let me give you real quick. How do we fight these? Are you ready? Three ways we fight these strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5 says, we are not passive to these strongholds, but with divine power. Everybody say divine power. We can destroy the strongholds, the lies, and the mindset. So here are our weapons. Are you ready? Number one, repentance. Come on, guys. You, you, you said some really, really, really nasty accusations against your creator. 
God says you are my beloved and you think, well, I believe I'm kind of trash. I think you're wrong, God. I think you don't know what you're talking about. God says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Really? Because I think I'm kind of awkward and dumb. You say, oh, Craig, that's no big deal. Yes, it is. You are making an accusation against the one who made you. He's crazy about you because he made you. You, you understand this, right? He, it's just not about you taking credit for this. This is like he's marveling at what he has done. So you've got to repent, friend. You've got to seek his forgiveness for how you've called him a liar. And anytime you throw back into God an excuse of why you're not, he says you are. You're calling him a liar. So you've got to repent. You've got you, you to seek his forgiveness. Second thing we must do, and if you're depending on your faith tradition, this one might be new to you, but let me teach on it just for a moment. This concept of renouncing. You've got to renounce. What do you mean by that, Craig? Listen, if, if repentance is, please forgive me, Father, renouncing is, let me define it for you, formally declaring one's abandonment of. That's what renouncing is. So I'm repenting and I'm saying, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm tired of living that way. I'm tired, God, of doing that, living that way. I don't want to live that way anymore. And then what do we renounce? What is that? Like people pray with you, okay? And if you've never been in a, like a charismatic Pentecostal environment, renouncing might not make sense to you. But let me tell you, did you know for the first 1,500 years of church life, you know every time you got baptized in water, guess what you had to do? You had to renounce openly among the whole congregation what sins you were renouncing publicly. You would renounce it in front of brothers and sisters. You would say, I'm, I'm formally declaring my abandonment of, and you would fill in the blank. Listen, if you've never been a part of this, it's when you come to an altar and people start praying with you and they start literally renouncing things off your life. I'm talking about getting specific, folks. I'm not saying, oh God, forgive me. That's repentance. I'm talking about people not renouncing specific sins. Like you are saying to God, you're, I'm going to give you a moment to do that in just a minute. I am breaking ties with that. I no longer have allegiance with that. I no longer have obligation to live under that. And then guess what happens? Now we've done some spiritual work. We've repented before God. We've renounced. We've kind of tilled up the soul of our hearts. And then now we need to finish Satan off. We need to hit him with a club. You know how we hit him with the club? Number three, we fight him with truth. If I want my next to be now, I got to say goodbye to the strongholds. So how do we do this? Real quick, I'm going to show you how you do this. Romans chapter 8, for me, is like a baseball bat that you can, again, take to the mouth of Satan over and over and over again. The Bible is very clear, friends. You do not have to be friendly with the enemy. You're not friendly. Romans 8 kind of breaks, again, the teeth of the devil. So here's the process. Watch this. We repent. We renounce. And y'all, it's deep work, folks. It is deep work. Like, 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 like Mark, it happened when he was five and he's been living out of it for 30 years. It's going to take deep work to renounce that, to renounce that stronghold. And then you need weapons. Now watch this. Our strongholds have occurred because we've believed lies. The primary weapon against lies is God's truth. So you can get prayed for oh, in a minute, in a moment. You can get prayed for, but when you walk out, He's ready to whisper to you in your car. Here's what's amazing. Satan's probably whispering to some of you right now. Craig doesn't mean you. He means everybody else in this room. You've been living with it too long. 
No way, you're getting free. Romans 8, 1, that is what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How about that one? <laughs> you like that one? I like that one. No condemn- hey, by the way, in Greek there, no condemnation means no condemnation. It means none. There's no condemnation for you. Like, so, so, so look at me, look at me. Do you have something behind you that still makes you feel dirty? You think back on it and you actually feel nauseous this morning? Maybe no one knows anything about it. Can I just say to you, friend, by hiding in the dark like that, you're giving Satan all sorts of place and space to play with. That's why confession is such a good thing. Like once you confess, Satan comes to you and he's like, hey man, do you know how God feels about it? You're like a hypocrite. And you're like, I know I'm a hypocrite. You know, like I know. And I trust Jesus. Like what are you going to say to me? Like I'm trying my best to live for Jesus. This is why confession is so amazing. I say this to you all the time. Let me say it again. Christ knew what he was buying on the cross, friends. He's not looking at you with regret, wanting a mulligan. He knew what he was getting you. He knew what he was getting you. Jacked up, strange, goofy, unique, you. And he shed his blood for you. I love this verse, y'all. You know why? Because I got some stuff in my past I ain't proud of. Am I the only one, jacked up preacher man, past? Y'all, I got, I got some stuff in my past. If you knew about it, I might get canceled. <laughs> right on the spot, American culture might cancel me. But there's no condemnation for me. God says no condemnation. How about this one? You ready for this one? Romans 8, 31. Th- we're just taking the bat. Just, teeth, teeth, teeth. 31, 32. Well, then shall we say to these things, if God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also, what, would graciously give us all things? Watch how this works. How many of you, how many of you, if something, something terrible happened to you and you think, you know what, I'm being punished by God. Y'all, I hear people say some crazy nonsense. Think about how often that didn't happen because you didn't do this, 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 and this. That is a lie. That is a stronghold kind of stuff. The Bible says, the text says, God is for me. He's not against me. Which means the lens by which I have to see even the most difficult days of my life is the lens that God is not wrathful towards me. I'm not under wrath. I'm under grace. So whatever this is, I don't know what it is. I don't like it. Take it from me, God, but it's not his wrath. Hey, this season I'm going through, I don't like it. I don't understand it. It feels really bad, but it's not his wrath. I'm not under his wrath. That's a lie. That's a stronghold. You are under grace. You are not under wrath. I don't like it. I don't know why it happened. I don't understand it, God, but it's not his wrath. Why? Because the Bible says I'm under his grace. You fight the stronghold with the truth. Verse 33, he goes on and says, hey, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Listen, doesn't God already know everything? So when Satan says, man, that thing really, really bothers the Lord. Just look at him and say, Satan, shut up. He already knows about it and he justifies me. Shut up. He justifies me. He already knows about that sin. So stop looking within to try to fight him with your own self-righteousness. And look back to the truth of God and get set free from the stronghold of a past failure and be moving into the next of what God has for your life. Verse 34 and 35, who is in the condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and at the right hand of God, he's interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of God? No one will. Look at me. Come on, band. You have been uniquely wired by God, placed by God. He will never leave you. He'll never abandon you, friend. And he hasn't forgotten about you. You know what the Bible says about you? The Bible says he delights in you. 
You're like, delight, Pastor Craig? Surely, surely he's just patiently waiting for me to get a better and become a better version of what I am now. It's not what the book says. So who's telling the truth, the book or you? God's not delighting in a future version of you. He's delighting in you. And so what happens is we get so bound up in these emotions of our past. And it's time for us as a church to move forward to what's next. Listen, do you, did you know that uh, anger is not a primary emotion? Do you know this? I was talking to my wife about this this week. It's a secondary emotion, which means if you struggle with anger, guess what? You struggle with sadness. So if you're angry, it's because you're sad. It's because there's something an unmet expectation of something that can go down the way you thought it should go down. And if you're sad, that's not masculine. We can't talk about that stuff. We can't mention the time that our parents forgot about us. We can't talk about that sissy. We're flipping men. Grow a backbone. Grow a spine. Get up, dude. But Christ died so you don't have to live out of that ridiculous caricature of masculinity. And so listen, like Peter, you got to hold your head up. See, I think we believe God can forgive us, but we don't often know what to do with the shame feelings we feel inside. So the Bible says that when, when he denied Peter, or when Peter denied Jesus, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that when, when Peter denied Jesus, the Bible says that it was taking place by a coal of fires. Remember the circumstances? Well, why was there fire? Because it was cold. It was cold. And so here is Peter that night, and he's denying Jesus. Now, what do you do when you warm yourself by the fire? You smell smoke, right? Now, what are the circumstances in which Jesus reinstitutes or restores Peter? The Bible says in Jesus, John chapter 21, Jesus calls them to the shore and he's cooking breakfast for them and Peter is there warming his hands, right? And smoke was in his nostrils. And so Peter was standing before Jesus, kneeling before Jesus, and Jesus wanted Peter to ultimately have a different association to the smell of smoke than his own past failure. The Bible tells us, or history tells us, that Peter would tear up every time he would hear a rooster crow the rest of his life. He would constantly tear up because he was thinking about his past mistake. But do you know what's so beautiful, church? Do we know what's more powerful? than hearing and what's more powerful than sight is smell because in your smell you have an olfactory nerve that goes right up through your amygdala and it's the place of the brain that processes all the emotions and all the memories and so Jesus right there on that fireside that day puts Peter right next to the fire where the smoke that he is wafting up in his nose is reminding of him his worst moment when he spent his night cursing Jesus and Jesus with love filled eyes looks back at him and what does he do he asks him three times do you love me Peter 
Peter, not once, not twice, but thrice. Why? Because he denied him. Not once, but twice, not twice, but three times. And he says, do you love me, Peter? And Jesus, now with love-filled eyes, Peter looks up at him and he has a new association with the smoke that is coming up. So why? So that, listen, the rest of his life, the rest of his experience, when he would wake up in the morning and he would have to cook on a fire to get his breakfast ready, he would realize not the day or night that I cursed Jesus, but the day and the morning in which Jesus came and looked at me and he said, do you love me, Peter? He said, get up, boy. I got purpose for you, boy. I'm coming after broken disciples, disappointed disciples, failing disciples. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. I'm going to put my spirit in you, Peter. You're going to preach on the day of Pentecost. You don't know this yet, but your own shadow is going to heal people in the name of Jesus. I've got grace for you, Peter. In other words, goodbye, past, and hello, next. Hello, next. For you to experience what's next, you must be broken free of the strongholds of what's past. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.